0: Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you're listening. Welcome back to AI and the Future of Work. Thanks again for making this one of the most downloaded podcasts about the future of work. If you enjoy what we do, please like, comment, and share in your favorite podcast app, and we'll keep sharing great conversations like the one we've got today. I'm your host, Dan Turchin, advisor at Insight Finder, the system of intelligence for IT operations. And CEO of PeopleRain, the AI platform for IT and HR employee service. Today, we're picking up on a theme we discussed a few weeks back with Patty Padmanabhan from Demo Consulting. We started a discussion about the future of healthcare for employees, but also about how your data is being used to make automated decisions about your health and what you should know about how AI technology is disintermediating hospitals and insurance providers. BarPay Health is pioneering a new way for employees to get better care with, call it less friction, by guiding you through the complexities of your existing health benefits plan. We've all felt anxious over not knowing what's best, say, you know, in-network versus out of network, HMO versus PPO, high deductible versus low deductible. It's super confusing. Maybe all we need is a little concierge service provided by AI. We're joined today by Edmundo Gonzalez, co-founder and CEO of MarPay Health, the company behind the app that helps you understand your health benefits. Edmundo founded MarPay in April of 2019 and has since launched the app, grown the team, and taken the company public on the NASDAQ last October. As you and I know from trying to understand our own benefit statements, Edmundo's work is just getting started before Marpe, Edmundo was an investor and operator at companies like Freight Hub, 340B Technologies, and Chalkable in the EdTech space, which was acquired by PowerSchool. Without further ado, it is my pleasure to welcome Edmundo to the podcast. Edmundo, let's kick things off by having you share a little bit more about your background and uh, how you got into this space.
1: Sure. Well, it's a pleasure to be here with you, Dan. And it's, uh, it's going to be a great conversation. I can already sense it. Um, I got into this space because I have been uh, in basically the tech space all of my professional life, um, investing in, in companies and also uh, building them as a founder and entrepreneur. And I just saw such a huge opportunity to make uh, people's life better um, in a very um, transformative way. And let me explain um, a lot of how we consume our health care, especially in the United States, which is a little different, as you may know, um, than basically all other advanced economies, a lot of that has to do with the health plan, meaning who is covering us, um, what kind of benefits are we getting from that plan? So I started this company really with a very simple mission. I said, "Hey, what if we could predict?" Who's going to be sick or who's going to have a high cost event way before it happens? With that information, can't we actually help that person, that member of our plan, make some choices to uh, potentially prevent that high cost event or at least to better manage it? That's how it all started. And it's been quite a journey, as you said, in uh, in just a few
0: years. We've heard a variety of perspectives on what's broken about healthcare in the US. And something we haven't talked too much about is what's broken about the third party administrator or TPA system. I imagine you might have some thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, well, first of all, for, for your listeners, so let me just define this. So, you know, that in, in healthcare, about half of us in America are getting our healthcare benefits from our job. These are the employer-sponsored health plans, right? Now, those come in two flavors. Um, Companies can either buy insurance. So from companies like Blue Cross, from Aetna, Cigna, et cetera, these are uh, huge, huge companies. Now, all of that is an insurance product, meaning your company is paying a fee per employee per month to have you insured. Now, there's another model which about half um, of companies use, certainly um, companies that are um, above a few hundred employees. That's called self-insurance. Self-insurance really means that you as a company are paying for your employees' health care as they consume it. So there's no insurance per se. You're actually getting those bills, those medical claims, so then you're paying them. Now, Think about it. What if you're a law firm and you have 300 employees? Well, you may be really good at practicing law, but you don't really know how to pay a medical claim. This is There's art and science to this. That's where we come in. We are what's called a third-party administrator, or TPA, and what we do is essentially administer all of the healthcare benefits for self-insured companies. We partner with them to essentially provide everything, everything from that little Card you carry in your wallet, uh, which has, the, in our case, obviously the Marpe logo. Um, but everything um, we provide through partners, telehealth benefits, pharmacy benefits, everything that has to do with healthcare,
0: uh, we manage on behalf of our uh, on behalf of our clients. What is it that most employees at these organizations with self funded uh, healthcare plans? don't understand about the process and what do they respond to best when they are introduced to a more modern alternative like marpe
1: you know in in if if done right the um the healthcare benefit under self insurance looks and feels pretty much like it would under full insurance in other words the employee and the employee's family um would still have a plan with a deductible, they can still have, you know, access obviously to to most doctors or any doctor depending on on the plan. So the look and feel of that is is pretty similar. Now, how how are we really changing this for the benefit of employers uh, and obviously for the benefit of employees? Um, it really is about taking a look at a, a member's journey that healthcare journey, as that member um, goes through life, meaning uh, if that member is going to CVS to get uh, the fifth script of a certain drug, for example, what our algorithms are doing is taking that little data point, which is happens every day, you know, as we walk around, as we go about our business, we're taking that little data point, but comparing that with all of the medical claims that that member has and also where does that member live what's his age or her age Um, who is that member and we're comparing that to a huge research universe that we have built with tens and tens of millions of claims millions and millions of people essentially a universe that looks like society and then our algos say hey well, this member that just got, again, that fifth script at CVS actually looks like these 10,000 people over here who ended up in the ER in three to six months. So we should intervene and see what's going on with that member. So that's, that's the predictive power. This is how all of these algos really work. Now, what happens then? You know, prediction is not really worth much without action. So what we do is we have a team of uh, care team RNs essentially that are looking at these predictions and then reaching out to the member and getting them to the right care. What does that mean? Well, the right care in many cases may mean a visit to your um, primary care physician or internist. It may mean some labs, but it may that that those are very simple kind of low cost events for the member and for the plan. In many cases, it's free to the member. But that visit may uh, put that member uh, under a doctor's care now in a maintenance drug. And let's say that maintenance drug costs $50 to the plan. Maybe the copay to the member is $10. So that event may keep that member out of the ER in six months. That's what we do. That's what we do. We're closing the loop in uh, gaps before those gaps become really problematic for the member and obviously for the plan who is paying for all of this. We Our strategy is really two-pronged. We want to get higher health outcomes, essentially healthier people. Um, that directly translates to lower costs for our clients who are paying the bill, essentially. they they're, Remember, these are self-insured clients, so they're paying for all claims as they come.
0: It sounds so obvious to hear you describe it, and uh, listeners of this show know that just about every week we talk about how data is being used to make better automated decisions across all industries, whether it's you know education or construction or defense or anything else. And yet, the current process of how healthcare reimbursement decisions are made, at, at least to to me, is fairly opaque, and although it just seems patently obvious that you'd use data to make these decisions, what's the current process, and how could it be any different from what you just described? Well,
1: first of all, the data of, of accepting a claim or not accepting a claim that that is certainly part of what we do. And look, we are into this business because we want to provide great healthcare benefits. We want to make sure. That we're doing this proactively, Dan. You know, in our in our great country, we have what's called a what I call at least a sick care system. Meaning, if you're sick, we are the best in the world of treating that and expanding your 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 lifespan and just getting you well. What we're not really good about is actual health care, meaning proactive health that that keeps you from being sick. So we have used, first of all, accepted that that is reality, that we've used all of the data that a normal payer would have. um, And we have transformed that to be a proactive tool on behalf of our members. So we are not about rejecting claims. We want to get you to your primary care physician. You know, we just launched a whole program on gaps in care. So if you're a female of a certain age, you should be getting your mammograms. If you're a male of a certain age, you should have a colonoscopy. This saves lives. Now, does it increase a, a little bit the cost to the plan? Of course it does, but that's an investment in keeping you out of a hospital or having a very very high cost event in the future. The thing is, a lot of us uh, in in America, and I, I include myself there, um we We haven't really been uh taught to take those preventative care measures. Um, that's what we're doing now we're doing it, of course, um not only broadly speaking to keep everyone healthy. Of course we're doing that. we're actually very focused on people that are on a journey to really end up with a high cost event in three months, six months, you know, twelve months, essentially in the near term. Why are we doing that? well This is obviously very costly in terms of human health, first and foremost. And secondly, that is what's driving our healthcare costs. Our healthcare costs are higher than any industrialized um, country out there on a per capita basis because we're not as proactive as we should be. So we're targeting those very costly events first, while obviously our our long-term goal is just transforming uh, how we as a population approach health in terms of proactive
0: uh, measures to keep our our health outcomes up. So now is where the conversation gets a little bit bit complicated. So with, uh, say with great power comes great responsibility. You're using people's data to build deep learning models to predict risk. Uh, to your point, you know, we want to provide health care, not sick care. I think that's a nice way to say it. Um, but the cost of a false negative, something someone is at risk and you miss it, is great, as well as the cost of a false positive. Yes. You, you, you predict that someone is in grave danger. And in fact, they're not. Uh, talk to us about how you're using data, how you build the deep learning models, and how do you mitigate the risk of false positives and false negatives?
1: You're 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 hitting the nail on the head. Look in in the world of artificial intelligence, you really have two big metrics. I'm talking like big picture, and that's what's called precision uh, and recall, right? Let me let me deal with recall first. Recall is essentially uh, your capture rate, right? So let's say in a population of ten thousand employees. Uh, and their families, Um, that you had for certain, meaning that if you could tell exactly what that population uh, was like, you had uh, 200 people that were uh, going to develop, they were on a journey for sure, um, going to develop a certain condition. Well, the model, meaning the AI that you develop to predict who those 200 are, that has to be measured on recall and precision. So recall is basically the rate of how many of those 200 you actually captured, okay? Now, precision is the other side. Precision means, let's say that your model said, well, it's these 200. Well, how correct were you? Meaning, were only 100 of the 200 actually developing this condition? That would mean your precision rate was 50%. Not very good, right? Um, what I um, a kind of err on is recall. Recall meaning I want to capture as many of these cases as possible. This is a moral argument as well. And by the way, these two metrics fight with each other, right? So you can have very high recall and low precision and, and very high precision and low recall, right? Um, it, it's a natural kind of uh, attention When you're building these models but our job here is to capture as much as possible so then it gets to the other side well you may have some false positives now what's a false positive in our mind Um, okay so you went to the doctor and thank goodness you actually didn't have this condition you know but was that doctor's visit a waste of time i don't think so because they also captured your weight uh, your blood pressure right so the cost of the false positive for us is normally a quote unquote wasted primary care visit. I don't think it's a waste. <laughs> I really don't. Um, but that's, that's how we're thinking about this. And look, um, being uh, moral right, in this, in this space is, is quite important. So we, we could well make the decision to have almost perfect precision and then miss some. Essentially our recall would be lower. I just don't think that's morally right, and we're not going to do it.
0: Hey, so to everyone listening, uh, play that back a few times. That that last couple of <laughs> minutes was, uh, it, it, it captures a lot about how uh, AI-driven decision-making works, and uh, that does really well said, Amanda. So as a patient, I obviously want to benefit from models that, that have high precision and high recall. Like you said, you know, they, they're trade-offs. And we, we, as a patient, I benefit from uh, you know, better functioning, more accurate uh, AI models. And yet the conundrum is that I don't necessarily want to volunteer my data to benefit everyone else to improve these models. So the, the et- you mentioned ethics it kind of talk us through the ethics of you, you need a lot of data and the data comes from patients. Yes. And you know how, how do you um, what what's your pitch pitch to patients whose data you're aggregating to feed the deep learning models to benefit everyone?
1: Look, this is it's it's such an important question, and I think we as a society are going to continue wrestling with with this. Meaning, do I benefit from the prediction from from the product essentially that's being offered to me, but am I giving up something, some privacy? something that is mine. And by the way, it is yours. If anyone tells you differently, you should know that the data are yours <laughs> first and foremost, right? Um, I think that's a natural tension that we that we will continue um, battling. I'm not sure we're completely there as a society in terms of having uh, an answer to, to all of this. What I will share with you is that our research library of uh, tens of millions of, of patient uh, information. It's all it mostly claims, by the way. That is anonymized. That I have, I have actually purchased from states or gotten into partnership with states. So that data is never our client data. Our client data is live data, meaning it's, it's data as that uh, member is going to CVS or is going to the doctor for the fifth time in the short span of time. Um, but that uh, and, and that data by the way, is is only used to predict you know what that member is uh, is experiencing or not experiencing. so there's there's a very different world here, and it's very important for listeners to understand. Um, AI is is a technology, it's not a product, okay And that technology needs to be trained. It has to learn just like our human brain learns. so it's important that it learns on a huge amount of data, but that data doesn't have to be yours. (laughs) That data is normally purchased in an an, anonymized way, so I can tell someone is male, uh, that someone potentially has this weight or that weight, but all of that world is in our research data uh, universe, and and that's certainly not the, the, the data that you're sharing with us on a live basis.
0: But so let's say, hypothetically speaking, the source of your data, let's say states, like you mentioned, uh, their process for aggregating the data. I get that it's anonymized, but let's say that those who volunteer their data to the state may not be representative of the distribution of, let's say, ethnicities, races, genders across the whole population. So you're potentially purchasing data and making decisions, training deep learning models based on it, that inherently has some bias in it. How do you you defend against that?
1: First and foremost, the fight against bias is realizing that bias is a thing, right? So you can't really solve a problem if you don't acknowledge it's a problem. The way you actually um, fight that, if you will, is first and foremost, having huge data sets. So you can't have a representative sample or call that representative of America and have tens of thousands. You really need millions. They have to be diverse. And then then you check. So is uh, the the ethnic uh, composition, for example, of your data set representative of America? Or if you're not targeting America, let's say that your whole market was uh, Florida, for example. Well, does it look like Florida? In terms of age, uh, race, Everything, you know, access to food, uh, you know, the, uh, income inequality. Remember that the drivers of health are varied. This is a complex world, and, and that's, you have to realize this, right? Your zip code matters in terms of your health outcomes. So, do you have all zip codes, or do you have zip codes that look like this zip code, right? You have to realize these items in order to make sure that your training data is valid and representative of the target population. In other words, you have to have apples and apples, not apples and oranges. Um, And it's a constant item that one has to really be uh, very careful of. We're we're very passionate uh, about making our research universe look like uh, the clients that we're serving across the country.
0: As a consumer, an employee, a patient who's impacted by the decisions made by these deep learning models, should I know when a decision was made based on AI? And depending on your response to that question, should I understand what inputs were used to make that decision? How how much configurability or explainability should I expect as someone whose healthcare decisions are made based on AI?
1: Yeah. So let me actually separate here uh, the items a bit, because I, I think the your your, your your question has many nuances and, and they're all important. So first and foremost, um, we're not really making decisions um, based on, on our deep learning model. What we're doing is identifying anomalies and identifying items that are not normal. And I say that, what does normal mean? It means that it's not what's expected. And what, what is expected? Well, again, a research universe of millions and millions of, of interactions, millions and millions of healthcare uh, journeys, right? So this journey, if, it's, if it comes to an alert, uh, driven by our by our algos is kind of atypical. So that's that's first and foremost. But then what happens? Well, we're not saying okay, this person is for certain going to get X, Y, and Z. We're saying let's get that uh, that journey looked at by a clinician. So our care team immediately looks at this and intervenes, meaning uh, interacts with that member with that patient. And gets them to the right care. Um, the, ultimately, we need to have the power of healthcare decision making in the hands of doctors. Our tools are essentially moving you to that doctor, to the right care, to the high quality physician. Right? This is all data that we're we're also looking at in terms of quality. That's a whole other item as well. So. It's not really a decision making as much as alerting um, the the member via by via by a care professional um, that something has gone kind of off normal that's that's really the um, uh, the bottom line here in the future should you be uh, aware that this prediction was made at least in part uh, by an AI i I think so, I think so. I think by the way, um, one would be surprised to understand how much of our daily movements, <laughs> whether it's uh, shopping uh, or selection of what you buy in the uh, the grocery store, how much of that is actually driven by data and advanced analytics like AI, not only AI but but like ai uh, and yes this this would be one as well, but these are helpful tools to get you To the right care, it's not the care. Let me just separate that and be very clear. Your listeners should know: uh, deep learning is not going to prescribe medicine to you. It's not going to give you an MRI or prescribe an MRI. It's really telling the 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 care team, "Hey, take a look at this patient because there may be some things that are that are going kind of off track."
0: So, in all data driven fields, a common obvious hypothesis is that the one with the most data wins. And in healthcare, we've seen pretty aggressive moves into the space from big tech, from Apple and Amazon and Microsoft, even Facebook, because they own the data. What's what's your counter argument? How can MarPay win when you're competing with these massive incumbents that own all this data?
1: You know, they, first of all, big tech does have a massive amount of data, but um, we want the right data. Like, do they have health records? Not really. Do they have a medical claim? Certainly not. Right. So we, you have to also focus on what's right, what is, uh, what's right in terms of data, what is going to give you accurate models that can change people's health trajectory. It's really, I, I guess there could be some, uh, some items that have to do with your, you know, Instagram patterns, uh, and consumption of Instagram, but really it's different data. And, and I think that's what's so fascinating and so interesting here. I mean, think about it. All of our predictions here are actually not made with health records. It, it sounds counterintuitive but we're not using health records, that's the challenge, right? We love hard problems. So we as a healthcare uh, payer, as an as administrator of healthcare benefits, we have medical claims. We obviously have um, population statistics like where you live, uh, who, uh, uh, how old you are, et cetera. Are you male, female? But we're making a lot of our predictions on are based on claims. But it's not health records, right? So there's many ways to get at actionable data and actionable insights. And I don't believe the, the, the issue of, you know, evermore is best. Certainly they, they have their businesses and everything, but it's really the right data. You know, are you creating a universe of unbiased data that looks like society And then does that data have enough signals that your algorithms can then uh, train and learn from and then apply to me as I go to CVS or as I go to my doctor for the fifth time and generate the same medical claim? Um, That's a big question. We're doing it, by the way. But the industry at large, not so much.
0: So the biggest insurance companies and the biggest third party administrators do own a lot of the claims data. We know certainly uh, in in, uh, in 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 the technology field. We know that they tend to be tech laggards, mm-hmm. not tech leaders, and that's what gives companies like Marpay an opportunity to disrupt them. But given that, they obviously eye the same opportunity to digitize and and monetize their data and build better models. What has their response been to Marpay's entrance into the market?
1: You know, so far. Um, a lot of our growth has been actually from groups that m- are moving from those fully insured uh, behemoths to self-insurance just because they can't afford it anymore. Meaning uh, companies want to provide great health care. It's, it's, it's part of the overall benefit, just like your salary, right? I mean, it's it's part of what you get by being part of this company, being an employee in company X, Y, or Z. But... Um, the cost has just been completely prohibitive. So far, they have still been the sleepy giants. Um, I don't expect that to continue, right? So, so far it has been, um, I wouldn't say easy, nothing's ever easy, but uh, we have really operated and grown and continue to grow um, without much interference. Um, I will tell you that uh, we even, uh with with two of the largest uh, and Bucas, uh essentially the, the the big players uh we actually rent their entire national network so we're able to give our uh you know members access to all of these national networks which is great because that access is the key we want our members to be able to access any doctor they want our networks cover 90% plus so of all doctors and facilities in America, right? So I think they have found ways to you know, still uh, monetize even when they're not the, the primary uh, provider of, of the uh, healthcare benefit.
0: So polish your crystal ball. Let's say in 10 years, we're having a version of this conversation and Marpe is wildly successful. How is life different? How is healthcare different for me as, a, uh, as an employee?
1: Well, I think first and foremost, health has become proactive right? So health is not something that happens to you. Health is something you drive. And that is, it it sounds so simple. It's completely hard to do. All of that movement has much more to do with uh, behavioral economics and and, and psychology than, than any AI, right? But I think our responsibility as payers of the future is really to get products that are easy to use, easy to understand, and that deliver tangible value to members. Meaning, oh, this tool actually reminded me that I hadn't had my colonoscopy, or if you're female, I hadn't had my uh, mammogram in its time. And then something is found and a life is saved. <laughs> that is uh, remarkable you know, in, in the world but it's also remarkable for that member, for that member's family, and then that spreads. That That is the, the news, right, around the cooler, even if it's a virtual water cooler these days with, uh, with us working from home. But that is what we do. And I think that is the change that will drive members to really use some of this, essentially not just take their healthcare benefit for granted and say, okay, when I'm sick, I, I have my little card and I go to the doctor. But really, how, how are you looking at this proactively? How are you looking at the measures that impact your likelihood to have diabetes in the next you know three, four years? All of that has to do with education and the health plan must be at the center of this. So that's part of the transformation we're doing. It's a very, very exciting uh, time for us, for our members, obviously, and, and for our employer group clients. But yeah, the, I see the future, the future is proactive.
0: Edmunda we're about out of time, but I'm not letting you off the hot seat without answering one last question for me. So we've been talking mostly about the, the benefits administration process, but uh, what your perspective on the future of medicine? So through the last couple of years in the pandemic, obviously, there's been a massive shift toward telemedicine but also the advent of wearables, monitors, sensors. Is there a future in which instead of me having to go to the hospital to get some kind of medicine or healthcare service delivered, will it ever come to me? Is there ever a, a, you know, a time when that traditional notion of you know me having to do a doctor's visit and sit in a waiting room and that sort of thing, could, could that very notion of how we get Healthcare delivered ever be disrupted?
1: Um, you bet it is, and it's already being disrupted in many cases where there's home care, especially for seniors or for people that are uh, experiencing um, long-term care at home. The cost of that delivery is a fraction of the current model. It's where we need to go, um, and all of these wearables and and things. Think of this, although that, that, that segment looks mature, it's just starting. It really is just starting. And I think, you know, uh, members of, of health plans, uh, I, I include myself here, um, have a role to play in the development of this space. Some of it is scary because, of course, it's collecting data. It may be syncing it with your iPhone. But the benefits of that, I think, in the, in the years to come are going to so outweigh any concerns on, on, on data that um, I my personal prediction is that I think the majority of members will opt in to some sharing just because the benefit is so great. So no, I do believe that the future is personalized and the future is certainly more at home, but don't confuse the, the machine, meaning the little device with the healthcare provider. This is all tools. A stethoscope, old school stethoscope, it's basically a tool. Your watch can become that stethoscope. It's just remote. You have it live. You know, that's, that's really the future. I think that's the way to think about it. These are tools that are monitoring you for your benefit. You call the shots. You say what you want to monitor and what you're uh, worried about uh, in order to take care of yourself and in order, finally, to move to a real healthcare system versus sick care system.
0: Edmundo, this has been fantastic. I've really enjoyed it. We are, uh, we're just scratching the surface. So much more to discuss. Uh, if I could invite you back maybe another time, we'll, we'll continue the discussion. How would that be?
1: It would be my great pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed it.
0: You bet. Uh, anything else our audience to you know about MarPay or where they can learn more? No, certainly
1: um, one can learn more at uh, www.marpayhealth.com. And MarPay is M-A-R-P-A-I health.com. Thanks so much, Dan.
0: Fantastic. Great having you here. And uh, that's a wrap for this week. Uh, I'm your host, Dan Turchin of AI and the Future of Work. Uh, We will be back next week with another fascinating guest.